0: Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, we're going to continue looking at the Jury Directions Act before we finish that act up. what we're going to be doing is looking at each of the principal evidential directions that arise under part four of the Act starting with section 18 and going all the way to section 44 so it's quite a few to deal with and that will bring us to the end of the discussion of specific evidential directions I'll relate them back as best I can to our studies of evidence as we go. The last few provisions that we'll be having a look at are sections 61 to 67 of the Jury Directions Act. This brings to an end criminal trial procedure with just a, a, a summary of the general directions that are given typically at the start of a trial judge's charge to the jury at the end of a criminal trial. Um, they're happily much more straightforward than these evidential provisions so it's a nice way to end up and it's certainly um, a simpler way to end up than the first three quarters of the discussion is going to suggest. Now starting with part four of the Jury Directions Act the first division relates to post-offence conduct which was referred to under the common law as evidence of consciousness of guilt although even under the common law that expression was not used to direct a jury because the suggestion of guilt or consciousness of guilt tended to undermine the presumption of innocence and so it's referred to variously as post defense conduct or incriminating conduct in the course of a trial. Section 24 of the Jury Directions Act indicates that in this particular area The common law has now been superseded by these legislative provisions so reading section 24 to you the starting point is that except as provided by the division a trial judge is not required to give the jury a direction regarding evidence because it is evidence of incriminating conduct or may be improperly used as evidence of incriminating conduct and for those old common lawyers in this field you'll remember that The directions which uh, related to incriminating conduct at common law were based around the case of Edwards and the Queen, which was a High Court decision handed down in 1993. It was quite a technical decision in many ways, and it gave rise to many, many, many appeals post-1993 in relation to its implementation. So that's now been replaced by the statutory provisions I'm just about to discuss and Edwards' direction would be given where evidence was capable of giving rise to an inference of consciousness of guilt. If the evidence was incapable of giving rise to an inference of consciousness of guilt, then a trial judge at common law would need to give what was called a Zonif direction, Zon F and the Queen, which was a 2000 High Court decision. Now, likewise, a Zonef direction is now no longer available because, of course, that's the common law as well. Instead, we'll look at the Jury Directions Act provisions that are given when the evidence could not amount as a matter of law to incriminating conduct. We'll discuss those once we've looked at the the directions that must be given where evidence can amount to incriminating conduct. So back to section 18 of the Jury Directions Act. So the directions that we're just about to discuss, which may be appropriate to be given in a particular case if the prosecution submits that they are so appropriate under section 12, which we discussed in the last discussion, relate to conduct by an accused which is said to amount to an implied admission. First thing first, section 18. Conduct means the telling of a lie by the accused or any other act or omission of the accused, which occurs after the event or events alleged to constitute an offence charged. So the description of conduct is broad enough to include lies and other acts or omissions by the accused. And typically, but not by far from always, flight is the classic example of conduct which uh, could fall within these provisions. So here we're talking about a lie told by an accused that could amount to an implied admission for reasons we're just about to discuss, or other conduct by the accused which is also suggestive of being an implied admission. So put yourself in the position where police arrive uh, to arrest an accused and the accused, when becoming aware that the police uh, um, might be about to arrest him or her, decides to run instead of yielding to the arrest. That's classic conduct which might be said to amount to incriminating conduct under these provisions. And then the next definition is what is incriminating conduct in this area? Section 18 of the Jury Directions Act incriminating conduct means conduct that amounts to an implied admission by the accused of having committed an offence charged or an element of the offence charged or which negates a defence to an offence charged. So, I've given you that um, flight example as being such conduct. Another example, of course, is lies told by an accused where, and and the common law discussed this in such close detail where it's said that the particular lie told by the accused, which may represent a denial of having committed an offence charged or an element of the offence charged, and it's proven by other evidence to be a lie, is said to be told because telling the truth would implicate the accused in the crime. So an example might be taking, for instance, um, the case of a sexual penetration allegation where uh, the accused is charged with rape of a particular complainant and the accused lies and says that sexual penetration did not take place and that evidence is proven to be a lie by other evidence. It could be, for instance, that the accused concedes that they did have sex Now, it's not going to be every lie that could amount to an admission in in that particular way. It has to be a lie that has that direct connection to the offence charged or an element of the offence charged. Typically, it has to be proven to be a lie, either by admission or by other evidence, other than the balance of the prosecution case. And so here we're getting into a bit of a sideline because we'd just like to focus on what jury directions can be given, but... If the accused has, has simply denied committing the offence and the only way that the prosecution can show that that is a lie is by the jury accepting the rest of the case, then that is not such a lie because otherwise it would undermine the defence and it would undermine the response to the charges. So here usually we're talking about a, a, an admitted lie or a proven lie where that lie is utterly germane to the offence charged or an element of the offence charged. Now if the prosecution intends to rely on conduct, and you'll remember that conduct is broad enough to include that telling of a lie in in this particular area of the Jury Directions Act, notice must be given under section 19, which I'll just take you through briefly. So typically a lie or conduct will not amount to incriminating conduct. It's a small group of conduct, it's a small group of lies that could fall within these provisions. And if the prosecution wishes so to rely on that lie or conduct as incriminating conduct under section 19, the prosecution must give notice of that reliance by serving on the accused and filing in the court at least 28 days before day one of trial, a notice of intention to rely on evidence of incriminating conduct and a copy of that evidence. Though under section 19 subsection three, the trial judge is empowered to dispense with the requirements of notice. So that gives the opponent um, notice of the fact that it's going to be led in that particular way and it gives um, the defence the opportunity to object to it so being led so that it can be listed before the trial judge for pretrial argument if necessary. Section 20 of the Jury Directions Act um, indicates the prosecution must not rely on evidence of conduct as evidence of incriminating conduct unless that notice has been given and the trial judge determines on the basis of the evidence as a whole, the evidence of the conduct is reasonably capable of being viewed by the jury as evidence of incriminating conduct. So these provisions are intended to bring acutely to the opponent's attention, to the trial judge's attention of the way in which this evidence is going to be led. So not just being led, but being led in this particular evidentiary way. So let's assume that there is a lie that has been told by the accused, which is acutely relied on by the prosecution in this particular way. The trial judge has ruled in acceptance of that characterisation. And it's not just a lie that's being led as part of the prosecution case, but it's being led as incriminating conduct, that is an implied admission, that by the telling of the lie, the accused is actually revealing the admission that if the truth had been told, it would implicate them in the commission of the offence or an element of the commission of the offence. In such a case under section 21 of the Jury Directions Act, if the prosecution has relied on the evidence in that way, such as this lie, the trial judge must direct the jury, section 21, that the jury may treat the evidence as evidence that the accused believed that they had committed the offence charged, or an element of the offence charged, or negated defence to the offence charged, only if the jury concludes one, the conduct occurred, and two, the only reasonable explanation of the conduct is that the accused held that belief. And further, the trial judge must direct the jury, 21 1b, even if the jury concludes that the accused believe they had committed the offence charged it must still decide on the basis of the evidence as a whole whether the prosecution has proved the guilt of the accused beyond reasonable doubt the section 21 direction that may be requested by the prosecution if they have relied on the evidence in this, of this particular way has those various limbs 21, one a one and 2 and then 211b So that's the direction that assists the jury in how the evidence can be used and how the evidence may not be used. Further, under Section 22, the defence may request a direction under Section 12, which you'll remember from the last discussion, is the the stage in the trial in which the defence requests certain directions. But if the Section 21 direction is going to be given at the request of the prosecution, Then defence counsel may request a section 22 direction. So, this continues, as it turns out, the old Edwards directions is the second half. The trial judge may also direct the jury that, hey, there are all sorts of reasons why a person might behave in a way that makes the person look guilty, and, B, the accused may have engaged in the conduct even though the accused is not guilty of the offence charged. And C, even if the jury thinks the conduct may makes the accused look guilty, that does not necessarily mean that the accused is guilty. And it would usually be a sound forensic choice for defence counsel to request the second part of that direction. So to finish up the example that I'd given earlier in relation to an allegation of rape, where the accused was said to have lied and falsely denied the act of sexual penetration with the complainant, if, for instance, the accused admitted that they'd lied but said, look, this wasn't an admission in relation to non-consensual sex, I I worried that the complainant wasn't of age, then that might be an explanation as to why they might have told the lie, which is inconsistent with guilt of the offence charged. So if your exam scenario involved the reliance by the prosecution on a lie or conduct as amounting to to an implied admission of guilt, then you'd go through each of those steps noting the prosecution would uh, request a section 21 direction and it would be sound um, forensic practice for the defence to request a section 22 direction. We then move on to the section 23 direction which would arise in circumstances in which evidence may be led of conduct which on its face may look incriminating but it turns out is not and on that basis the judge may need to warn the jury against the misuse of evidence and I'll give you an example of this in a moment. So if evidence is given of conduct but the prosecution doesn't rely on the evidence as evidence of incriminating conduct, so let's use as an example a lie that's not an implied admission. Defence counsel may request under section 12 that the trial judge A, direct the jury that there are all sorts of reasons why a person might behave in a way that makes the person look guilty and B, warn the jury that even if the jury thinks that the accused engaged in the conduct... It must not conclude from that evidence that the accused is guilty of the offence charged. Now if we continue to use that example of a false denial of sex in the circumstances of the particular case... So it might be that the accused is charged with rape and that they have falsely denied even meeting the complainant. It might be that after the trial judge has ruled or it might be that the prosecution has um, sought that the evidence not be led as incriminating conduct. But then the jury might be left with a lie that actually can't amount to an implied admission of guilt, such as a false denial of knowing the complainant where the trial judge has ruled that the evidence did not amount to consciousness of guilt or an implied admission. So in such a case, we don't leave lies hanging in the evidence, hanging in the ether, without warning the jury not to misuse the evidence this is the last trace of the old zonf direction at common law so this is a case in which the jury might be left thinking that the accused told a lie out of consciousness of guilt even though it's not used in that way and it cannot be used in that way So under section 23, the trial judge then directs the jury, of course, there are all sorts of reasons why a person might behave in a way that makes them look guilty and warn the jury, even if they think the accused engaged in the conduct such as the lie, the jury can't conclude from that evidence that the accused is guilty of the offence charged. So that concludes then the first division of part four, which is uh, post-offence conduct. Division two relates to other misconduct evidence. So this is evidence that falls outside false, um, sorry, post defense conduct and it applies separately to any other obligations arising. Note please section 26 foreshadows the reference to coincidence evidence, so other misconduct evidence means coincidence evidence or tendency evidence, or evidence of other discreditable acts and omissions of an accused that are not directly relevant to a fact and issue, or evidence that is adduced to assist the jury to understand the context in which the offence charged or any alternative offence is alleged to have been committed. And to use a very basic example that arises from time to time, It could be suggested in the course of evidence given of an assault or a sexual assault, such as the scenario we've been discussing, that the accused may have, for instance, consumed drugs or may have certain property in their possession that is suggestive of another crime that is uncharged. Now, in such a case, that might be evidence that's relevant to context and it might be given to allow the jury to have a full picture of the complainant's evidence. So that is an example of context referred to in 26D. So usually at the point of giving the evidence, but certainly at the conclusion of the trial, the trial judge is obliged, if requested, not to leave that evidence hanging. Otherwise, there's that same risk that the jury might think. Well, the accused consumed drugs, therefore they are more likely to have engaged in the charged offences, which would be wrong. Instead, Defence counsel may be moved to seek a direction on misconduct evidence under Section 27 of the Jury Directions Act, if that evidence of, for instance, the consumption of drugs has been led. So Section 27 of the Jury Directions Act allows Defence counsel to request under Section 12 that the trial judge direct the jury on this other misconduct evidence. And the way that this direction works under 27.2 is that the trial judge must identify how the other misconduct evidence is relevant to the existence of a fact and issue in the trial, and direct the jury not to use the evidence for any other purpose. I'll return to this example in a moment. And if the evidence forms only part of the prosecution case against the accused, inform the jury of that fact and direct the jury that it must not decide the case based on prejudice arising from what the jury has heard about the accused. So the drugs example would then oblige the the trial judge if request had been made, To tell the jury, you may have heard members of the jury reference to evidence that suggests that the accused may have used drugs in connection with the other evidence given by the complainant. So the misconduct evidence there is relevant if you accept it to the context of the story told by the complainant and members of the jury, you must not decide the case based on simple prejudice about the concept that because the uh, accused might have taken drugs on this occasion, if you accept that evidence, it's more likely simply because of that fact that they committed the offence charged. Now, as misconduct evidence is broad enough to include tendency evidence or coincidence evidence, which you might remember from our earlier discussions on the law of evidence, Section 27 obliges a trial judge, if asked by the defence in a particular case, to explain to a jury, for instance, if a prior conviction was used as evidence of tendency or the circumstances of a prior conviction, to give the jury a careful direction about how tendency evidence can be used and how the evidence cannot be used. And in a particular case, that might be the suggestion that even if you find that the accused committed on offense an offence on another occasion. This is simply part of the prosecution case and it does not absolve the jury from considering the other admissible evidence led in support of guilt and pointing away from guilt. Section 28, which you can read in your own time, relates to a situation in a joint trial, a trial of co-accused where one accused might lead misconduct evidence about another accused. It's a specific scenario which you can have a look at in your own time. Section 29 of the Evidence Act would be applied in a situation where either prosecution or defence counsel requested that the trial judge warn a jury not to use the evidence as tendency evidence. So if evidence has not been led as suggesting a tendency to think in a particular way or to act in a particular way and prosecution or defence counsel is concerned that it will still be used in that way then the trial judge might need to warn the jury not to so reason. So the continuing example might be where it's alleged that the accused committed an act of brutal violence and in the context of the complainant's narrative it's described that the accused might have taken ice if the consumption of ice is relied upon as context and not of tendency so the the um over-simplistic notion that because an accused took ice they therefore had a tendency to engage in acts of violence and defense is concerned in particular that the jury might misreason that the ice led to a tendency to violence then that might prompt the Defence counsel to submit that a section 29 direction ought be given and it can be given. And section 30 abolishes the common law in this regard. So if there is other misconduct evidence led in a trial, the group of provisions applying is as per section 25 to 30 of the Jury Directions Act and that now supersedes the earlier common law. The next group of examinable provisions is division three of this part which relates to unreliable evidence and it takes into account the evidence of particular witnesses which the common law in its quite old-fashioned wisdom some more than other it suggests that certain witnesses might be unreliable for particular reasons or, and this is now less sensible, certain witnesses might be unreliable for more general reasons. The classic examples that are now long superseded in the common law would be, of course, the children are unreliable witnesses as a group simply because of their immature age. And indeed, if we go further back into the common law, the evidence of complainants in sexual assault cases uh, decades ago used to be viewed As inherently unreliable unless it was uh, confirmed by other evidence. Some of the directions that are about to be given are eminently sensible so I'll point those out as time goes on and they were informed by the common law and continue. So when we talk about evidence of a kind that may be unreliable under section 31 we're talking about certain hearsay evidence, certain admissions, The next class is 31B, evidence the reliability of which may be affected by age, ill health, injury or the like. Now that group has, whilst the common law was a bit suspicious about it, is now dealt with on a particular case by particular case basis. So we don't approach witnesses who by reason of their ill health are considered to be inherently unreliable. We don't generalise, we now relate it back to the specifics of the case. The next category is under C of this section, evidence given by a witness who might reasonably be supposed to have been criminally concerned in the events giving rise to the trial and evidence given by a witness who is a prison informer. So the common law endures in this respect and has been picked up by these provisions of the Jury Directions Act. So the evidence of a co-accused or a person who is supposed to have been criminally concerned or a prison informer can generally be treated as likely to be unreliable and inviting a direction. And the last category which arises fairly sparingly under Victorian law is oral evidence of questioning by an investigating official of an accused where the questioning has not been acknowledged by the accused. We've looked at admissions. It doesn't arise very often in practice, of course, because in other areas of Victorian law, this evidence would tend to be excluded. So you'd need to look at the provisions of the general law in this regard. So under Section 32 of the Jury Directions Act, either counsel may request under Section 12 that the trial judge direct the jury on evidence of a kind that may be unreliable. So let's say, for instance, that you might think that the categories identified in Section 31 are the categories that are most likely to arise in practice and most likely to be examined in the bar exam. So if you had one of those categories, then it may inspire you to move to Section 32 and to seek a relevant direction. 32.2, though, indicates that it's not the simple pointing to evidence of this category that triggers an unreliable witness warning. Instead, under 32.2, prosecution or defence counsel, whoever has made the request for a particular jury direction, must specify, A, the significant matters that make the evidence unreliable, or B, if the request concerns evidence given by a child, these significant matters other than solely the age of the child that may make the evidence of the child unreliable. It's, of course, not enough to point to an eight-year-old witness and say, Your Honour, the witness is eight. So let's take, for instance, the concept of an accused who might be criminally involved, but who might have received um, some form of sentencing discount or letter of comfort or indemnity from the prosecution that has incentivised them giving evidence They're the types of matters that you'd need to point to to uh, generate an interest in the trial judge in giving a particular direction. So if the trial judge is sufficiently moved by the significant matters that may make the evidence unreliable in a particular case to give a direction, under 32.3, the trial judge must warn the jury that the evidence, for instance, of the person who's said to be criminally involved may be unreliable and then the trial judge must inform the jury of any of these significant matters that the trial judge considers may cause the evidence to be unreliable or in the case of evidence given by a child the significant matters other than solely the age of the child that the trial judge considers may make the evidence of the child unreliable and then warn the jury of the need for caution in determining whether to accept the evidence and the weight given to it. So in relation to that criminally involved witness, the trial judge would warn the jury that the evidence of the particular criminally involved witness may be unreliable. Then moving on, the trial judge would then point out the matters alluded to by counsel or any other matters that may cause that evidence to be unreliable, such as in the circumstances of this case, members of the jury You've heard that this person who may otherwise have been exposed to criminal consequences or may otherwise have been exposed to a longer sentence managed to avoid that consequence by giving this evidence. And it might be said by Learner Defence counsel that that provides them with an incentive to be unreliable, for instance. And then the trial judge comes to the conclusion under 3C by then warning the jury of the need for caution in determining whether to accept the evidence of this accomplice and the weight to be given to it. So there are the triggers and there's the direction. So I'll refer to section 33 and then I'll make some more general comments, Um, but you, you will be seeing a pattern in relation to these provisions. You have to be able to identify the issue So what is it about the circumstances of the case that stimulate discussion of these provisions? Noting, of course, under the Jury Directions Act, that tremendous reliance will be placed on counsel's decision whether or not to seek these directions, and then the contents of the direction probably actually given you the messages that I was just about to postpone until after section 33. Now if you have a child witness and if a request has been made under section 12 and under sections 31 and 32 for a direction in relation to the potential unreliability of the child's evidence, please see section 33 of the jury directions act. The trial judge, both counsel or if the accused is unrepresented, him or herself, must not say or suggest in any way to the jury that children as a class are unreliable witnesses or the evidence of children as a class is inherently less credible or reliable or requires more careful scrutiny than the evidence of adults or a particular child's evidence is unreliable solely on account of the age of the child or 33d that it would be dangerous to convict on the uncorroborated evidence of a witness because that witness is a child Our direction will not be given simpliciter just because the child the witness is a child nor will there be any generalized propositions about the unreliability of Children's evidence. In a particular case, though, you'll need something to point to to suggest such a direction should be given in relation to that particular child's evidence. Otherwise, there won't be a basis for giving the direction. And Section 34 abolishes the common law prior to the introduction introduction of those provisions. So even if there is another common law rule, it's now superseded by the provisions that we've just discussed. The next batch of provisions, Division 4, relates to identification evidence. And in this area, for old common lawyers you would appreciate that this was the Dominican warning and other similar warnings. The Dominican warning and the common law around it arose because of the proposition that a jury might find an identification witness's evidence so a witness who manages to ID a person or recognises a person for instance uh, from a, a lineup or from photographic ID evidence or something that happens later on The jury may find that witness to be credible in that they're sincere and they're believable, but it may turn out that that evidence is unreliable. So in this particular area, the reason why direction needs to be given is because a jury may be misled by the credibility of the evidence, not to give the evidence the scrutiny that it properly needs. So looking at these provisions, Section 35 is Definition. And we've already talked about these directions in passing when we looked at ID evidence. Identification evidence in this context means an assertion by a person or a report of an assertion by a person to the effect that they recognise or don't recognise a person or object as the person or object that they saw, heard or perceived on the relevant occasion. The relevant occasion in this context, of course, is usually the scene of the crime or the general appearance or characteristics of a person or object are similar or not similar to the general appearance or characteristics of the person or object that they saw, heard or perceived. So there they could be describing the colour of the hair, the height of the person that they saw, heard or perceived and on a later occasion and it includes a visual identification evidence and picture identification evidence as we've already discussed Moving on to section 36, this invites under one prosecution or defence counsel to request one of these directions under section 12 and 36.2. It's not enough that it's identification evidence. Further, prosecution or defence counsel must then move on to specify the significant matters that make the evidence unreliable. And 36.3, if a direction is going to be given, the trial judge must A, warn the jury of the need for caution in determining whether to accept the evidence and the weight to be given to it, and B, inform the jury of the significant matters that the trial judge considers may make the evidence unreliable. This usually relates back to what prosecution or defence counsel or both have identified as particular vulnerabilities in the evidence. And inform the jury, and this draws heavily from the old Dominican warning, that a witness may honestly believe that their evidence is accurate when the witness is in fact mistaken, and the mistaken evidence of a witness may be convincing, and D, if relevant, inform the jury that a number of witnesses may all be mistaken, and E, if relevant, inform the jury that mistaken identification evidence has resulted in innocent people being convicted. So section 36 if the direction is given is a fairly robust invitation to the jury to scrutinize the evidence carefully the types of matters that you as you may remember from our discussion of evidence that may affect the uh, reliability of the evidence may include for instance the opportunity that the witness had to observe the person at the scene the circumstances of that identification so was it dark was there a lot of action going on around that person and how long they had to observe the person and whether the person was previously known to them for instance in any other matters that that are relevant in the circumstances of the case and lastly section 37 that then abolishes rules of common law so if a an identification evidence is to be given it must be in conformity with division four uh, the the part of the jury directions act that we're discussing so we now talk about division five delay and forensic disadvantage Um, and this is the longman warning and other similar warnings now section 38 defines forensic disadvantage as being a disadvantage not just the existence of delay, but something more than that, it means that in some way the accused in a criminal trial is disadvantaged in the conduct of that particular trial by reason of delay. And here delay often relates to the time that it takes between the alleged commission of the crime and the matter being investigated, charged and witnesses being cross-examined. So the delay that we're talking about in this context is the delay between the alleged commission of the crime and the first report, the first investigation, and the witnesses being um, examined and cross-examined. This is most commonly observed in the context of sexual offences and, as we'll discuss, Parliament has recognised in the context of sexual offences that it's commonly the case that delay occurs between the commission of the incident and the first report. So in guiding principles in a number of different areas uh, governing uh, how sexual offences are to be interpreted and applied, Parliament observes the prevalence of delay. So it's not unusual but The flip side of the prevalence of that delay is looking to the conduct of the trial. Sometimes an accused may be disadvantaged in the conduct of that trial by that passage of time. So the potential disadvantages in a particular case might be the inability in the complainant to specify with any precision time and date of the commission of a particular crime. So that then might make it more difficult for the accused to mount a specific defence to the charge other than a, a, a bare denial. So if an offence is alleged to have occurred some 10 years earlier and it's alleged to have occurred, for instance, over the school holidays, the passage of those 10 years might make it more difficult for the accused to reply, well, I was at work at the time or I was in the company of others or something other else that's more specific here I'm really being very general. Further it might be that during those 10 years the accused can point to the fact that other witnesses who had observed not even the crime itself but circumstances and context surrounding the particulars of the allegation have moved away or died or are otherwise unable to be located or that their memories have faded. And though this isn't an exhaustive list, it might be that, for instance, reports of doctors, of others who had consulted the accused or others during that period of 10 years might have destroyed their reports due to normal document retention policies. So it might be that doctors archive or destroy their files after a particular period of time, and the accused might be able to point to the fact that they'd seen a particular doctor on a particular occasion around the date on which it's alleged that the incident occurred, but that the reports have been destroyed or lost. So they're the types of disadvantages that an accused may point to in in a particular case. So returning to section 38, forensic disadvantage means a disadvantage that is more than the mere existence of delay to the accused in challenging, adducing or giving evidence or conducting their case because of the consequences of delay due to the period of time that has elapsed between the alleged offence and the trial. Section 39 allows a particular direction to be given if defence counsel so requests under section 12 about for this direction on forensic disadvantage. 39 subsection 2 the trial judge may direct the jury as requested only if the trial judge is satisfied that the accused has experienced a significant forensic disadvantage. So it's not just delay, it's not just forensic disadvantage, there needs to be something more specific and significant. That's why you need to be able to muster the facts that suggest there has been a particular significant forensic disadvantage or more than one. 39.3, if a trial judge decides to go ahead and give such a direction, the trial judge must inform the jury of the nature of the disadvantage experienced by the accused and the need to take the disadvantage into account when considering the evidence and must not say or suggest in any way to the jury that it would be dangerous or unsafe to convict the accused or the victim's evidence should be scrutinised with great care. Confer the old common law such as in Longman, Kilby and other relevant High Court cases. Section 40 abolishes any continuing operation of those common law rules. So we're now closing in on the very last examinable provisions that might arise in a specific case in your exam, and that is Division 6. So this is the last batch of relevant, accessible, uh, specific directions that can be given. So Division 6 is a group of diverse directions. So I'll just take you through them one by one. 41 relates to a scenario where the accused has not given evidence reasonably common and or the accused has not called witnesses. If the accused does not give evidence or call a particular witness defence counsel may request a section 12 direction on that fact and here's the contents of the direction so 41.2 The trial judge must explain A, the prosecution's obligation to prove the accused is guilty and B, the accused is not required to give evidence or call a witness and C, that the jury should not guess or speculate about what might have been contained in the evidence that was not given by the accused or the evidence that might have been given by a witness who was not called as the case requires and D that the fact that the accused did not give evidence or call a witness is not evidence against the accused, is not an admission by the accused, must not be used to fill gaps in the evidence adduced by the prosecution and does not strengthen the prosecution case. Section 42 under the Jury Directions Act, the trial judge, the prosecution and defence counsel must not say or suggest in any way to the jury that because an accused did not give evidence or call a particular witness, the jury may conclude that the accused is guilty from that fact or use the failure of the accused to provide an explanation of facts Must be within the knowledge of the accused to more safely draw an adverse inference based on those facts, which, if drawn, would prove the guilt of the accused. It's an old Weissensteiner direction at common law, or draw an inference that the accused did not give evidence or call a witness because that would not have assisted his or her case. So it could be a section 41 direction, it could be 42, or some combination. Section 43 is an old friend we looked at this in the context of evidence and Jones and Dunkell as it applies to prosecution cases. Um, 43 relates to prosecution not calling or questioning witness so defence counsel may request a section 12 direction about the significance of that fact in a particular trial and under forty three two, the trial judge may direct the jury only if the trial judge is satisfied that the prosecution was reasonably expected to call or question the witness and has not satisfactorily explained why it did not call or question the witness and the trial judge may then inform the jury that it may conclude that the witness would not have assisted the prosecution case. So section 43 is the current legislative expression of the extent to which the owns and the old Jones and Dunkell direction applies to the prosecution in a criminal case. You'll remember Jones and Dunkell does not apply to the accused, otherwise it would undermine the presumption of innocence and the onus on the prosecution. That's represented by 41 and 42, and it still applies in civil cases. And section 44 abolishes those old rules, Weissensteiner as a party, Jones and Dunkell, and the fact that that does not apply in criminal cases to the accused, which was the old high court case of Dyer's. You can understand for a moment why why the old common lawyers shed a tear with the introduction of the Jury Directions Act, because it represents such a substantial modification of some of the aspects of criminal law. And you can also understand its advantages, because now a trial judge is not obliged to interpret or integrate any of the old common law warnings, which uh, were technical and complicated. Now the last provisions to which I need to draw your attention are um, 61 to 67 of the Jury Directions Act. These are obligatory if they're relevant in the circumstances of the case. So these are provisions that apply universally unlike the provisions that we've looked at for the last hour or so including in the last discussion which were optional based on forensic choice. So noting these Section 61, which we looked at in the context of evidence. The only matters that the trial judge may direct the jury must be proved beyond reasonable doubt are the elements of the offence charged or an alternative offences and the absence of any relevant defence unless an enactment otherwise provides. So that replaces the old common law, including the old Chamberlain direction, Shepherd directions in relation to limbs of circumstantial evidence. Next section 62 provides that the common law, such as in the case of Shepherd, is now abolished, and also Sadler. If you're interested in uncharged acts, including uh, intendency and so forth, so now if, if it, the following matters in the uh, Jury Directions Act uh, um, prevail, including section 61, and that's what section 62 relates to. Next, section 63. This is reactive to the jury asking the trial judge a question about, directly or indirectly, about the phrase proof beyond reasonable doubt. So section 63 now allows a trial judge to give the jury at such an explanation if asked. And section 64 is the content of that explanation. So the trial judge under section 64 may refer to the presumption of innocence and the prosecution's obligation to prove that the accused is guilty or indicate it's not enough for the prosecution to persuade the jury that the accused is probably guilty or very likely to be guilty or Indicate that it's almost impossible to prove anything with absolute certainty when reconstructing past events and the prosecution doesn't have to do so. Or indicate that the jury can't be satisfied that the accused is guilty if the jury has a reasonable doubt about whether the accused is guilty. Or indicate that a reasonable doubt is not an imaginary or fanciful doubt or an unrealistic possibility. So that abolishes the old common law that restricted a trial judge from giving the jury any further explanation beyond indicating that proof beyond reasonable doubt means just that. Now the next group of provisions relate to a particular situation where the jury has indicated its inability to return a unanimous verdict. You can have a look at these provisions yourself so they're very specific and reactive to the jury indicating that difficulty or impasse in relation to their deliberations so here and the trigger is section 64b so the trial judge can give the jury a perseverance warning but can't do so after directing them to give a majority verdict Now it's a matter for you how closely you look at these provisions there are provisions that allow the returning of a majority verdict under the criminal procedure act all right so turning then to the last few provisions if there's more than one offence charge section 64 e the trial judge may direct the jury on the order in which the jury must consider the offences Please note if there are alternative verdicts available on an indictment, the jury is obliged to start with the most serious alternative before considering less serious alternatives. See, for instance, the note in 64E, the accused is charged with murder, which includes the lesser alternative of manslaughter. The trial judge must direct the jury to to start with its deliberations with respect to murder and if and only if, The accused is unanimously found to be not guilty. Would they then go on to consider the lesser alternative? 64F allows the judge to direct the jury on the order in which it must consider, for instance, the elements of an offence charged or an alternative offence, defences to an offence charged or an alternative, the matters in issue, and alternative bases of complicity. And 64G abolishes common law rules. Section 65, which is our third last provision of the Jury Directions Act, confines the trial judge's obligations to explain only so much of the law as is necessary for the jury to determine the issues in the trial. Still confirms the trial judge's obligation to refer the jury to the way in which the prosecution and the accused have put their cases in relation to the issues, but it abridges the trial judge's requirement to summarise closing addresses which used to be an old common law obligation. It also abridges the requirement to give a summary of the evidence but it still confirms that a trial judge must identify so much of the evidence as is necessary to assist the jury to determine the issues in the trial and may use a combination of oral and written components and Often, a trial judge will refer to a checklist of elements or other similar document. Section 66 confirms that the trial judge is required to identify only so much of the evidence given in the trial as is necessary to assist the jury to determine the issues in the trial, having regard to, for instance, the facts in issue, complexity of the facts in issue, the length of the trial, the submissions and addresses, and the way that each counsel have put their case. So section 66 abolishes um, and abridges old common law responsibilities that used to see trial judges summarise the evidence given by every single witness. And finally, the last examinable provision of the Jury Directions Act, Integrated Directions, 67.2, the trial judge may give to the jury directions that contain or are in the form of factual questions that address matters the jury must consider or be satisfied of to reach a verdict, including elements and defences. So it could be in the form of a question trail. If for instance, the issue at trial is identity. Was the accused the person who committed the offence? That can be asked in the form of a question before moving on to the elements. And so you'll see from 63, uh, 67.3, the trial judge may give integrated directions that combine factual questions referred to in 67.2 with directions as to evidence and references to the way in which each counsel has put their case So that brings the discussion of the Jury Directions Act to the end. In the next discussion, we'll start looking and we'll need to do so with some focus on principles of sentencing and the Sentencing Act. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.